Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. This is Ideas on Trapped Unplugged. I am here today with Omotola Abimbola, an economist. Welcome, Omotola. Thank you, Toby. Great to be here. Obviously, let's start with the CBN governor. He wrote a paper a couple of days ago. True. I read it. It's filled with good intentions. I'm sure you did mm-hmm. too. In fact, I think the first breakdown of the content I got from your Twitter page, and okay. I think that that prompted me to download and read as well. So mm-hmm. can you just paint a picture for us, at least for those that haven't, what he was trying to say and help us make sense of it all? So um, essentially, what the CBN governor did was to set the agenda for the economy in terms of what the response would be to the multiple shocks that Nigeria is experiencing at the moment. And he gave what I would call a timeline-bound response, which consisted of both short, medium, and long-term policy uh, bias of the fiscal and monetary authorities, essentially, to what we're experiencing at the moment. And in terms of the contents of the, of the policy speech itself, I would say that it was largely in line with what we know of the CBN governor. So it was filled with so many protectionist rhetorics where the government essentially, you know, more or less doubled down on his import substitution ideas that we already know him for. Uh, so since the current CBN governor was sworn in about, about five years ago, one idea he has talked to right from his first speech is that the central bank order will, will be much, much more, you know, dynamic and um, will also be very unconventional in nature. Naturally, you know, most central banks globally, particularly in developing markets in SSA region, usually have a very, very simple policy objective. It is price and exchange rate stability. Yeah. But the CBN under, you know, government in Italy, they've gone above and beyond that. And in terms of the rhetoric, you know, that was in this speech, I would say that Italy is not alone. Um, if you look at what is happening globally, both in developed economies, you know, such as the U.S., even in Matthew one, such as Brazil, we have been witnessing what I would call a new wave of, should I call it deglobalization, or a push towards unrolling some of the gains we have had over the past three decades, that we saw globalization, you know, become uh, very much more widespread, you know, all over the world. And so it's not a lone voice in that sense. It's largely in line with what we have been witnessing all over the world. And I would also say that what he said in his speech regarding more protectionism, having a very good local industry, there is really nothing absolutely wrong with that, right? Many countries in the world, they all aspire to have a very strong domestic industry, right? That people should get out of their supply chain and also create jobs for the economy. And if you even look at how the current crisis has played out, you would notice that in the response of countries that have very strong manufacturing economy, you know, that are very, very much plus global supply chain, they've been able to navigate the problem of scarcity of PPEs, right? If you think about yeah. Germany, for instance, you know, regarding how they've been able to scale up ICUs, uh, we think about China as well and a couple of other emerging economies. They've been able to actually navigate the crisis better than the countries who have emphasized industrial economy in favor of services. So I would say, Philly is not wrong, you know, in that sense as well. But what is a bit striking about his speech is that it's more or less cemented what we already know that Nigeria Central Bank Governor is now taking a much more central role in economic planning and development in Nigeria. So initially, we used to have, you know, much more, we used to have very eccentric central bank governors, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, Samisi was very, very popular. Sudo was very, very popular. But they tend to actually know the limits of their powers. And they tend to actually focus more on their core objectives of price and exchange stability. But government Mifili, while he's still, you know, very, very eccentric in a way, is a lot more influential in the sense that he doesn't mind using all the policy tools within his power to achieve his objective. Now, talking about developed planning and the CBN, it did not start today. Under Governor Soludo, 
he facilitated the establishment of the AFC, Africa Finance Corporation, which has become a very prime DFI, private sector-led DFI in Africa today. And I think you should be very kind to him, looking at what AFC has been able to achieve over the past couple of years. Under Governor Sanusi as well, we saw the central bank becoming very much more involved in what I would call both development and NGO-led activities in terms of building capacity for higher institutions, the healthcare sector, microfinance, agriculture funding, etc. But under government Mepili, I mean, I would say that it has become uh, even the primary objective of the central bank. While, you know, what should naturally be his remit of macro stability has become a secondary objective. And I would say that I really don't have any issue, you know, with the items that he listed up that he wanted to achieve. But where the problem lies is how are you going to go about implementing all these things we talked about? And are you in the best position to actually drive this particular objective? And I'll answer that question by saying three major things. Number one, the balance sheet of the Central Bank of Nigeria, I would say it is not enough or it is not big enough to finance all the goals and the objectives that he has set for himself in terms of infrastructure investing, supporting SMEs, supporting healthcare-related businesses, both pharmaceutical and even hospitals. Um, over the last three to four years, we have seen the balance sheet of the central bank that has it more than triple, right? And that is even if you remove its external reserves, if you remove the net foreign assets from the central bank's assets, it has more or less tripled over the past four years. In the four years before that, the balance sheet was barely changed, right? And you can attribute yeah. this expansion in the balance sheet mainly to the fact that the central bank has become the primary financier of both the government and even the private sector, right? Um, yeah. It has killed up its monetary financing of fiscal deficits. It's launched a bailout fund for the subnational governments. You know, when we had the last recession, the bank has built up a private sector loan book exceeding 3 trillion naira. The bank is financing uh, the power sector as well through intervention funding. So all these things, right, they yeah. have more or less created so many vulnerabilities for the economy to the extent that if they want to now launch a second phase of this program to the tune of raising 15 trillion naira, for instance, to finance infrastructure, it would risk overburdening the balance sheet of the central bank and then create other, should I call it, uh, unintended consequences in terms of exchange rates and price instability. So that's the first thing we have to, of course, you know, take into consideration. The second thing is, if the balance of the central bank is not enough to finance all these plans, that means it has to rely on the private sector to fund the plan. But the problem with that also is that Nigeria has a very, very low savings rate. Nigeria's savings rate is just about 70% of GDP, right? And very, very, very low. So it is not big enough to finance such a very ambitious infrastructure plan, right? So yeah. which means that we're still going to need a lot of foreign private capital to fund all these plans, right? And to attract foreign private capital into your country, you cannot shy away from structural reforms. Mm. And beyond structural reforms, you also need macroeconomic stability. You want to have a very predictable, to a very large extent, exchange rates. You want to have very low level of inflation. You want to have stable growth. If you have macroeconomic stability, then you can then build on that with structural reforms that would attract the most needed, you know, uh, foreign private capital that you need to finance your project. Point direct investment in Nigeria last year was just about $3.3 billion, about 0.7% of GDP. It ranks very, very low among, you know, very large marginal for 10 countries, and we are lagging behind. That's the way we actually have to improve on to ensure that the CBN's uh, very grand ambitions can be financed in a very, very sustainable way while we are still creating goals for the economy. And the last thing I will mention is that uh, the CBN has more or less um, dimensioned the problems of Nigeria regarding weak infrastructure and lack of access to funding to simply a lack of financing. And as we know it, to build a business, you know, goes beyond just having financing alone. 
and to build a very competitive economy in terms of exports, it goes beyond just having access to financing. You have to do the very hard work of fixing your structural issues, you know, such as ease of doing business, for instance, infrastructure, for instance. So just simply setting aside funds to help businesses will not be enough to get all the job done. We have to also look at ways to also bring the fiscal guys, you know, to the table for them to collaborate effectively and design um, a very, very comprehensive program that can actually address um, for the challenges. So I think that's that's what I have to say for now on the CBN's action plan. Okay, so two questions mm-hmm. come to mind on that. First is that, like you mentioned, this is all driven by import substitution industrialization. Yeah. Why are we persisting with that policy? Given the evidence, uh, if I can use that word, that it has failed in Africa in the past. It mm-hmm. also failed in Latin America. But sure. why are we persisting with that as opposed to export-oriented mm-hmm. industrialization where you can build up current account surpluses, like you said about our savings mm-hmm. rate, and amass a lot of foreign exchange? Why are we still doing ISI in this day and age? That's correct. And I mean, I, I love that question. I mean, for anybody who went to um, economic school, either undergraduate or grad school, one thing you will learn is the successes and failures of Asian countries, you know, regarding their development agenda, which was split between export oriented and import substitution. And like you mentioned, for the countries that actually follow the roots of export-oriented industrialization, such as South Korea, such as Japan, uh, such as to an extent as well, China at some point, when they opened up their economy in the early 2000s, they've already the benefits in terms of building up current account surpluses, uh, driving foreign direct investments that have helped to create wealth in the economy. Import solution industrialization is a, is a very, to an extent, I would say, a very narrow-minded way of looking at the world because as an economy, you cannot exist in isolation. What you should always seek to have is to be present in the global supply chain, right? Not necessarily to be the only place where you can manufacture. So if you can plug yourself to the global supply chain, then it would help you to scale up your exports. You know, it should be very easy, but I would say, I mean, if you look at the experience of the countries that went through these routes, between the 1990s and even early 2000s. That has been, uh, I would say, the most effective solution. But in terms of why our home policymakers are locally, why they are focused solely on that, I would say it's just a, it just seems to be the very, very easy path, right? Because for yeah. you to build an export competitive economy, it involves a lot, a lot of reforms, right? And that would take you through the whole gamut of having very good human capital, skilled labor, having high level of electricity access for both households and industries, and in general, having very good infrastructure as well. So I would just say it's a failure of ambition, and it's a very narrow-minded way of looking at things because it is very, very easy for you to build up the narrative of, oh, look, uh, you know, China is dumping in our country, Let's try to substitute whatever we are importing with what we are having now. But if you look at Nigeria, for instance, our level of imports is not so alarming. I would even say it is very, very, very low, right? Yeah. And having a current account deficit for some time is not a crime. Nigeria has been operating current account stop losses for long, right? For a very long period of time, since we had the commodity boom in the, in the early 2000s, still for very, very few periods of time that we had oil price cash. We've had very, very large current account stop losses. And this is very, very uncommon for developing countries, right? Uh, particularly in yeah. Africa. So we're actually shortchanging ourselves because we have the capacity to consume a lot more. If only we can open up a bit and try to also make reforms that can mobilize foreign direct investment to finance that current account deficit. If you look at the years where we had current account deficits, like 20, uh, 2015, 2016, for instance, uh, 2015 rather, as well as 2019, the problems that emanated in the balance of payments that even made those current accounts shortages very, very much worse 
was that we had very little foreign direct investment to fund that current account deficit. If we take countries such as Egypt and even Ghana to an extent, they consume a lot, right, compared to the size of their exports. But if you have the ability to make reforms that can bring in foreign direct investment to your country, then you increase the scope for you to consume a lot more and also reduce poverty incidence in your country. So to answer your question, I mean, I think it's just it's just a failure of ambition and taking the easy, you know, way out with every economic problem. At the end of the day, if you want to build a very competitive economy, we cannot shy away from necessary reforms that we need as a country. All right, all right. My next question would be, now, we know that developing countries are usually in this difficult position of trying to manage long-term growth objectives with um, counter-cyclical challenges. So if you have to identify three areas that we we are trying to keep it manageable. So if you have to identify three areas where we need urgent structural reforms, what would it be for you? I think the first one is the energy sector, right? And that goes from power to options and gas and the downstream oil and gas sector, right? Our current level of grid power supply is very, very low. It has been between 30,000 to 5,000 megawatts for close to two decades now. We definitely need to scale that up. And um, I would say the infrastructure for us to generate much more, you know, higher grid power, it is there already. We already have, you know, many thermal plants under the NIPP program, right? If you take that, you know, the NIPP plants together with the GenCos that were divested from, we can generate in total about 13,000 megawatts, right, of power supply. Where we have so, so why are we not doing that? Why, why are we generating so low? Essentially, it is a transmission and distribution problem. And you can trace that additional problem essentially to the failure of governments, right, to incentivize the private sector with a more cost-reflective power tariff. And if you look at what has happened since we had the divestment of the, of the GENCOs and the DISCOs, what we have had is a liquidity-strapped power sector value chain, whereby the DISCOs you know, are having very large ATC and sale losses, mainly because of lack of cost-reflective tariffs and also lack of investment in distribution and transportation infrastructure, both by the discourse and also the federal government that say controls the, uh, the transportation infrastructure. So in short, what we need to essentially solve that problem, I think at the moment we are working with the World Bank on a power sector recovery program. I mean, I've seen the document. It's a very, very comprehensive document. What we just need to have right now is the political will and the institutional mechanism to implement the plan to the latter and that would involve making some very tough decisions regarding power tariffs and to an extent also forcing the discourse to take on additional capital to at least invest in the production infrastructure so essentially we need to eliminate power tariffs to solve the liquidity challenges we are facing in the power sector so that's one thing in the energy sector the second thing i would say is also the upstream oil and gas sector but as far as i know nigeria has been producing two million barrels per day of oil over the last three or four decades. And that is simply, simply a failure of government and policy, right? And the so-called uh, power sector, the PIB, Petroleum Industry Bill, which has been touted to be the solution to the problems we are having now that will reduce the uncertainty regarding your investments. It has been the legislative harm of governments for over a decade now. So if you can just channel every resource that we have into at least trying to get that bill passed and also trying to scale up point direct investment into the sector to ramp up oil and gas exports that can generate the FS liquidity, especially to finance all our very ambitious plans, I think that'd be very, very good. And then totally in the power sector is the downstream oil and gas sector. I mean, for as long as I know now, we've been having this issue regarding power subsidy, rather petrol subsidy or no petrol subsidy. We've been able to actually eliminate subsidy on diesel and some other derivatives of liquid fuel 
But what we are having a problem with at the moment is with PMS, petrol. I mean, last year, government have spent over 700 billion at the official exchange rate to just, you know, fund petrol consumption, which, I mean, as several studies have shown, is benefiting more of the rich and the elites than the poor, you know, who are being deprived of investments in healthcare and education. So I think we need to solve that as well. The energy sector needs to receive attention. If we can have very good and very efficient energy sector value chain, right from power to upstream and down to more like gas sector, I think that would be, you know, a coupon for the government to help industrialization. The second thing I would say is education, right? Adult literacy. I'm not talking about just quantity alone in terms of the number of years, you know, that you are schooling, for instance, but the quality of the human capital as well and education we are receiving in tertiary institutions, right? And even secondary and primary institutions. So that's another area that requires attention. Um, the third thing I would mention is healthcare, right? Um, yeah. President Obasanjo did Nigeria a very big favor by going ahead with the pension sector reforms that has now led to Nigeria having more than 6 million RSA holders in the pension industry today. If we can have a similar structure where we can have universal access to primary health care and also trying to broaden health insurance in Nigeria, both for the aged and vulnerable, and even for the private sector as well, I think that will go a long way in trying to you know, build a very efficient um, health care industry. The current approach of simply you know, providing intervention funds for hospitals, it is not sustainable, right? If you don't fix the demand problem, and that demand problem stems from very little insurance penetration in the sector and also a lack of, you know, very quality healthcare as well. But if we can fix that demand problem through access to universal healthcare, right, and access to healthcare insurance, I think, um, you know, that would be a way to go, you know, in answer to your question, we need to get something done about the energy sector and health. That would be his point. Okay, okay. So a few notes on that. On healthcare, some people I know uh, asking everybody is of this opinion that for that to work, at least reforms in the healthcare industry, that you have to solve demand side issues like affordability for the people. Now, so here's my question. Isn't just this a symptom of our lack of commitment to economic growth. I mean, if people cannot even fund their health insurance policies simply because they don't make enough money, I mean, are we, is that not really just a consequence of years of neglecting growth policies and the spread of poverty? What, what do you think of that? Um, so I, I would say it is partly because of that, because we have actually underinvested in the healthcare industry over the years. What I have told people is that Nigeria's public sector is very, very small. So the entire recurrent government spending in Nigeria is less than 6% of GDP, and that is absolutely low. So if we can just prioritize some... So this is the fact that we have very, very little resources in terms of public expenditure, we're even making the wrong choices in terms of the priority of spending, in the sense that we're spending a lot of money subsidizing, for instance, the power sector, the downstream oil and gas sector, when we can actually channel these investments into healthcare and education, you know, that have way higher return in terms of development of the economy, and as well as infrastructure spending as well. So I would say that because we have underinvested over the years, the problem has piled up and created this demand problem. But we have had a bit of policy initiatives to tackle this problem by you know, different administrations. On the principle we had the NHIS, which provided insurance cover for civil servants. On that President Buhari, we've also seen the primary health care bill you know, being passed that also provide insurance cover, at least at the primary health care level. These are very, very good. But I think we also need to get a private sector solution, you know, very, very similar to what we had with the pension reforms. So at the moment, healthcare insurance cover at the private sector level is still very much more restricted to those working in the former sector. And as we know, in Nigeria and even many African countries, we have way higher informal economy than the former economy. 
I think we have to actually go beyond enforcing healthcare insurance cover at the former level to try to get the informal you know, economy involved as well. And that would involve a base of governments prioritizing the spending, you know, on having the vulnerable and the aged being on the government's insurance cover, as well as guaranteeing primary guaranteeing access to primary healthcare centers. So I think we're on the right path already with the primary healthcare club bill that was passed, but we need to invest a lot more in this sector over the medium term. Okay, so let's talk about debt a bit. Do we do we have a okay. debt problem? You know, currently the government has liquidity challenges. Mm-hmm. They are trying to make cuts and trims here and there. Yeah. We requested for an IMF facility. Why do we keep having this problem every 10, 20 years or so? Mm. So I would say, you know, um, many, many people like to say that Nigeria does not have a debt problem, but a revenue problem. So I partly, you know, agree with them. Although, um, if you're having a revenue problem, it also constitutes a problem for your debt sustainability over the long term. And that is where Nigeria is at the moment. We are having a sustainability issue because the cost of servicing the so-called very little debt burden that we have has not gone very astronomical as a ratio of our revenue. But first, a bit of context on the level of public debt. So one thing you have to understand about Nigeria is that the public debt number currently being reported by the DMO as 19% of GDP. I would say it does not provide a full picture of the true level of public debt. So beyond that DMO recognized debt, we also have a number of off-balance sheets, government debt, a lot of salary areas, etc. That if you actually want to take a very comprehensive look at Nigeria's public debt burden, some would say it is as high as 30% of GDP that the IMF currently reports, also currently estimated to be. So we also have some people who take a much more stringent look at the death number, such as S&P. S&P had its um, you know, last written report on Nigeria. They more or less confirmed that uh, you know, their estimate of our death body is about 45% of GDP because they actually consolidate Nigeria's, um, they actually considered the CBN's homo liability as a constituent of Nigeria's public debt. Okay. Um, so I would say that the range of public debt burden comes from between 19% to 45% of GDP. Although for me, I would agree more with the 30% of GDP because I think the 45% is a bit um, is a bit too harsh because Nigeria's central bank is not the only central bank in the world that engages in balance sheets management, liquidity management, that will sometimes, you know, result in issuances of securities in terms of, you know, liabilities. So, but beyond the 30% of GDP public debt burden, the biggest problem we have as a country now is that our debt servicing cost, it has ballooned to, uh, last year it was about 75% of GDP, and even last year, Nigeria's fiscal deficit was above its revenue. So that shows that you are having a debt sustainability issue. And that problem is a combination of very, very little revenue, right? Uh, because if you actually look at the revenue, federal government's revenue as a ratio of GDP, it is very, very low. So in 2019, it was below 30% of GDP. And over the years, it's been hovering between 3 to 4% of GDP, which is very, very absolutely low. In Ghana, the central government's revenue is around 50% of GDP. And same thing for the other SSA countries that you have around. So there's a need for us to scale up revenue generation. But you cannot solve that problem overnight because it's a very, very difficult problem. It's an age-long problem. Partly because we have a very, very large informal economy which by some estimates is between 50 to 60% of the current level of GDP. So you cannot solve that problem overnight. What I think should be the efficient thing to do at the moment is to make the very, very hard decisions in terms of the quick wins. Number one, eliminating you know, fuel subsidy, eliminate power tariffs, right? If you do that, right, you generate revenue increase your revenue, at least in the short term. And over the medium term, the benefits that will come in terms of improved productivity in the economy will even help you to generate even more revenue 
over the longer term. And we also have to solve the problem of trying to bring in more households, businesses into the former sector than we have at the moment. And this is why I think state governments can play a much more prominent role. In Nigeria, unlike many other countries, our personal income tax is being collected by the subnational government, right? Uh, while yeah. you have the corporate income tax being collected at the central level. I think this incentive structure is not balanced well enough. I should probably see a reversal of that role, right? Uh, such that states will have a much more closer interaction with their community. They can realize where the revenue leakages are, for instance, in terms of businesses, and they can be able to also use uh, tax tools as a form of incentive to industrialize and attract um, capital into their country. And beyond the revenue problem, I would say that we also have a budget financing problem because over the last three, four years now, much of Nigeria's fiscal deficit has been monetized by the Central Bank of Nigeria. And if you are a student of you know, monetary policy, this is actually a, a recipe to disaster. I mean, we have seen this happen in many countries, such as Venezuela <coughs> and, and Zimbabwe. <laughs> Those are the very extreme <laughs> countries. It has happened in other, you know, better stories as well, such as Ghana. For instance, those are not those are not encouraging examples. <laughs> not not encouraging at all. Not not encouraging at all. Because when you are engaging in monetary financing, essentially, it will have an impact on your monetary base as a central bank. It would have an impact on liquidity, and so have an impact on your inflation rate as well over the long term. And it is clearly not sustainable. So what I think the federal government has to do you know, over the short term is that they need to close that window of monetary financing or fiscal deficits. And I understand their fears in that, you know, if they decide to actually eat the market with the true level of fiscal deficit, it's going to drive up borrowing costs for the government, both in the external market and even the domestic market. That's a very, very valid concern. But there's an alternative route which we are not thinking about. And that is access to more multilateral financing. Particularly, I will say it, I know it's a taboo in Nigeria, but <laughs> IMF facility, for instance, I don't think it would be a wrong idea to do. Because what the IMF facility do for you is that if you look at uh, the fiscal and monetary authorities, one thing they've been saying since the onset of this current crisis is that, unlike before, they are now prepared to make you know, reforms. They want to remove subsidy on, in, in the energy sector, they want to make investments in infrastructure. They want to prioritize spending. They want to, you know, do more ease of doing business reform, which, by the way, has created some success. All these things are good. But if you are committed to making all these very hard reforms, why don't you want to reap the benefits by getting cheap access to funding that comes with it? If you go to the IMF, for instance, what they will typically require from you is that you make reforms that will make your debt sustainable. So if you're best to do all those reforms, why not go the whole hog and, you know, just get access to multilateral financing at very, very cheap rates? That would also help you to strengthen your country's narrative to foreign private capital, both in terms of FDI and FPI. If you take an high MF program, for instance, it's going to see that the community that this country is prepared to make very tough reforms and to make you a destination of foreign capital that will even help your country to unlock much more broader you know, access to financing. So I would say that if the fear is that if you take your very large deficit to the private market to fund, it will lead to increase you know, in financing costs, then perhaps we might, we might start considering taking an IMF, even if not a full IMF program, we can even take a standby facility, for instance, that can be triggered anytime we're having a balance of payment challenge. So, I mean, that, that's my own view regarding that. So number one, we need, of course, you know, more revenue reforms over the long term by strengthening the incentive structure, by trying to bring more uh, businesses into the former sector. But beyond that, we also have to solve our budget financing problems. And a high facility, you know, as difficult as it might be, might be a very feasible solution to take at this point. All right. All right. So I'm sure there are people listening now who would think 
Oh, here we go again with fuel subsidy and power tariffs and and what are the frictions to getting those two things done? Now, one thing I have noticed, at least my own observation, is that sometimes markets don't work in Nigeria, maybe because of some frictions. Okay, so if you remove fuel subsidy and everybody can sell at whatever price they want and government is no longer subsidizing and all that. There's still Ipman, for example, that can still fix prices or exercise sure. a form of collective control on sure. the government's will and ability and even incentives, you know. And even in the power sector, you also have a lot of operational and incentive problems where you remove tariffs, but some households still do not have meters and they get absurd estimated bills, which they don't end up paying, you know, and which also affects the revenue of the distribution company or, and transmits along the entire chain of power generation. So how do we get rid of these frictions that would let markets work the way it should in Nigeria? So I'm not someone that we fully advocate for free markets because, I mean, of course, we know we all know that markets fail. And uh, even if you look at what's happening in developed markets today, you know, where, we, where you have very high level of inequality in many free societies, that is now generating friction and leading to the uh, protectionist rhetoric that we are having, you know, all over the world today. It has, clearly, yeah. it has clearly proven that markets cannot entirely be left to its own device. But one thing we also have to take into cognizance is that um, if you take some of these very hard reforms I'm talking about, even multilateral lending partners, such as the IMF and the World Bank, they have also, over the past few years, revised their whole methodology of implementing programs in developing countries such that they do not neglect the welfare aspects of all these things. So you have mm. a country like Egypt, for instance, after they had the IMF program, after they began implementing the IMF program. So beyond providing urgent support for balance of payments needs and even budget financing, they also set aside a social welfare program that can cater to the poor and vulnerable that will be affected by some of these policy initiatives, you know, uh, that we are advocating for. And in Nigeria, our social investment program, which I would say, uh, I mean, is a very, very great idea that we've had under the current administration. It has received support from development partners, such as the World Bank, right? So it is not totally going to be a free market-driven economy. Yes, we want incentive structure to favor very efficient production of goods and services, right? But this is without neglecting the poor and vulnerable. So a way to go about this, for, for instance, is to scale up the social investment schemes that we have at the moment, right? Uh, you know, both uh, the GIP, the conditional cash transfer, ETC, such that we can protect the very poor and vulnerable that might be affected by these policies. So that, that's my own view on this. Oh, okay. And then lastly, that, that... and then lastly, sorry to cut you in. So yeah, I mean, you but... mentioned one very key thing about the fact that um, many of the reforms we are having, many of the so-called reforms that we are having now, is essentially just rhetorics. You know, saying we have the most subsidy, but without any institutional backing to actually support the functioning of the oil and gas sector, without the need for the government to come in intermittently to fund the gaps. So, I mean, like, I read one very nice article by, by Nonso, and it also reflects my own view that governments in general, I mean, if you do not have institutions that will hold them very accountable, you always run the risk of having fiscal indiscipline, right? This is why I think that now that the opinion seems to be in consensus for the removal of subsidy, this would be a good time not to waste the current crisis and probably take institutional mechanisms to enforce or guide against uh, future decisions by the federal government to pay for subsidy. So, I mean, for instance, 
we can make legislations that we mandate the PPP hurry to adjust prices monthly based on market exchange rates, uh, market prices of PMS, for instance. Another thing we can do is to allow the NNPC to divest from its downstream, you know, uh, downstream oil and gas subsidiary, which is actually a very low margin business. I mean, so if you don't have NNPC playing the downstream oil and gas sector, it could be a bit more difficult for us to force them to shoulder the burden of, um, of subsidies. So this is the time, this is a crisis that we are witnessing, and it should be good for us not to waste this crisis by making long-term structural reforms that I just highlighted. Yeah, yeah, good point. I, I just want to make a comment on the social investment program. Isn't means testing a sort of problem here? And here is my point. Take the current lockdown as an example. Businesses are shut down, people are staying at home, but government is saying that, oh, if you have up to 5,000 Naira in your account, I don't know how far that's true, by the way, but if you have up to 5,000 Naira in your account, you're not going to be getting cash transfers. But at the same time, you have people thinking, oh, does 5,000 Naira make me any richer? Is 5,000 Naira enough for me to live on for four weeks, you know? So is it means testing, you know? And I mean, income levels in the North and the South are pretty divergent, but the fact that you are at a certain daily income threshold in Nigeria, especially given inflation and other, other things, does not really make you any richer. So, means testing this social investment program as opposed to, say, maybe some other universal conditions, is that not really a limiting factor here? It, it is a limiting factor. And, I mean, like rightly mentioned, uh, paucity of data in the implementation of this social investment scheme is a problem that has to be addressed while we are still trying to scale up the program. So we need to actually understand Nigeria's poverty statistics a lot better. And we also need to understand what the universal basic income of the average Nigerian should be before we then understand what the needs of the household would be in terms of the income that is required for them to sustain their consumption and their basic requirements. So currently, I understand that the social registry uh, that's being used for the current social investment scheme that it was done in conjunction with the World Bank and it's also carried along, um, you know, the states. But there is no way anybody can convince me that we have only 2.6 million people in Nigeria today, right? This is a population, yeah. I mean, by some people's definition, of close to 200 million. And some people have estimated that the number of poor in Nigeria could be as high as 100 million. So we actually yeah. need to have enough data, right, in terms of the identification of every Nigerian to understand their income level, their consumption pattern, right, uh, their location. And this goes to show why we need a unique identification of every Nigerian. So if you look at some other countries that have you know, the developed countries that have large social programs, for instance, people have social security number, right? And yeah. all these disbursements can be easily tracked, right? Using the social security number of the beneficiaries. So I think the next thing we have to do, beyond just using a sampling technique across different local governments to identify the poor, who are very, who you cannot trace, for instance, I mean, when it comes to ease, is that we need to have a comprehensive database of every Nigerian. I know the NIMC, I mean, they've, they've been trying to implement a national ID card program for you know over a decade now. But so today, I'm not sure if we have a comprehensive database of Nigerians or if we have a very, very good survey that can tell us today what the basic income or the, what should be the universal basic income of every Nigerian. So I think as we scale up this program, those are the two things that we probably have to also have to work on. And these are, you know, things that we cannot do overnight, obviously. Together, the database of 200 million Nigerians is not an easy task. But I think as we are implementing these programs, 
we also have to be paying attention to the need for us to have much more accurate database of Nigerians. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Omodola. One sure. final question before I let you go. A, a basic okay. um, economics question that mm -hmm. I get a lot and which I want you to answer for us as an economist. Mm -hmm. Now, oil prices fluctuate. Now they are very low and it constitutes a revenue challenge for the federal government of Nigeria. Now, absent the pandemic and the lockdown and everything, this thing happened from time to time. Now, sure. if oil prices are low and government has a revenue problem, explain to us as simply as possible, how does that affect my bread selling business in Agigi or spare part business in Aba or my vegetable business in Oibu. How does that work? Okay, thank you, Toby. So to, to, to answer your question, I would say that the major problem coming out of the current week level of oil prices is not even the eats that government revenue will suffer in the economy, but the fact that Nigeria has failed to diversify its exports so that's one single commodity or should I say two commodities, oil and gas, still accounts for over 90% of everything we export, right? Mm. In terms of government's revenue, like I said initially, the government is very, very small in Nigeria. The total expenditure is less than 6% of GDP, right? Yeah. But if your sole export, if one single commodity accounts for over mm. 80 to 90 percent of your exports. The odds are that when that commodity is on the decline, right, you are going to experience a foreign exchange shortage. And when you experience a foreign exchange shortage, it has so many secondary impacts on the economy. Because number one, inflation level is going to rise because we depend on imported items to feed into both our food and even our manufacturing value chain. So mm -hmm. let's say, for instance, you're a producer, let's say you're a producer of bread, for instance, and you need wheat to actually produce that bread. Uh, that yeah. wheat is produced in uh, countries such as Russia, right? And the USA and so many other developed economies. And the price of that wheat is tied to the exchange rates, right? So each time you experience a decline in oil prices and your export revenue is falling, right? What you have yeah. to do is that you have to force the economy to consume less, right? Because yeah. of the high inflation that will emanate from such. So to solve the periodic volatility that we have in the economy as a result of falling oil prices, we need to do two major things. Number one, we need to diversify that export. And that goes to what we discussed earlier about either exports-oriented or import substitution. Our level of import as a country is actually very, very low. It's not so, so big. The problem is that our export has remained concentrated in a single commodity since more than three to five decades, right? So to correct yeah. that anomaly, we need to diversify our exports. Secondly, beyond diversifying exports, you also have to make Nigeria a hub for foreign direct investment rather than foreign portfolio investment. Because as a country today, beyond the vulnerability we have in our trade accounts or foreign accounts, the other vulnerability that we have is in our capital and financial accounts, right? Where we still have foreign portfolio investment being the major, major source of foreign exchange liquidity into Nigeria. We need to solve that problem. And to attract foreign direct investment, you know you are competing with a host of countries. And you are competing not based on fixed income yields, but you are competing with them based on your economic reforms and your ease of doing business. So go with us to strengthen ease of doing business reforms, right, to ensure that we attract enough FDI. And the third thing I would say, which I would call uh, a bonus point, is that regarding this same external sector vulnerability, Nigeria also has to do something which I will call, um, okay, the third thing I would yeah. say is trying to build 
a counter-cyclical buffer for the economy. So we understand mm -hmm. that our primary exports is hard, is very, very volatile. So the right thing for you is that when that commodity, when it is performing very, very well, you need to build your external and fiscal buffers such that you can respond counter-cyclically anytime that commodity price is declining. And this leads me to what happened to Nigeria at the last global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. Um, if you notice, Nigeria still had very, very strong growth in that period. We never went into a recession that period because yeah. we had enough fiscal and external buffer to actually counter that momentary decline in oil prices. Between 2014 and 2017, it was a different story because we had very, very little fiscal buffer and external buffer, so which, mean, which means that we have to take a very, very strong macroeconomic adjustment. This time around, it's a very, very similar thing. So entering into this crisis, Nigeria had a very large current account deficit with about 3.4% of GDP, right? We had reserves that are very, very highly leveraged, and we are having next to nothing in the excess crude accounts. If you take, for an example, the other countries who are dependent on commodities, such as, for instance, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Norway, you could argue that you know, many of them have much more higher production per capita than Nigeria, but you would notice that anytime we are having an increase in commodity prices, they never, never waste that period to build up their external and fiscal account. So Nigeria also has to go back to that era of trying to build countercyclical buffers that would enable the country to cope better, you know, with swings in commodity prices. So actually three things. Um, we need to diversify our exports. We need stronger FDI compared to FPI. And thirdly, we also need to build very strong countercyclical buffers that can help the economy to cope better with downturn in commodity prices. Thank you so much, Omotola. You've been fantastic. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks. You can subscribe to the podcast and newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Untrapped.substack.com. Thank you. Until next time.